This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, October 6, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. The public airing of certain ideas was once viewed as merely disagreeable. Today, disagreeable expressions are often viewed as offensive or triggering, and thus should be prohibited from public spaces, and in particular, college campuses. Greg Lukianoff from the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education is author of Freedom From Speech. We talked about it last month. You spend a lot of time talking about disinvitation season in in this piece. And first, just describe what that is. Well, disinvitation season um, was actually a, sort of a dark joke that we used to make within FIRE. Um, and it refers to every spring when uh, commencement speakers start getting announced uh, for different colleges across the country. Um, students and faculty will rise up to demand that they get disinvited. And as I said, at first it was sort of a dark joke, but then it seemed like every year it was getting worse and worse. And while FIRE uh, certainly supports students' rights to protest speakers or to disagree with the selection of a speaker, it seemed like the, the weight was really going in favor of having speakers entirely excluded from campus. And the, thing, the point I always like to make is that even though we talk about disinvitation season, and again, that's the, what the term means is the push to get people disinvited. The fact that they actually are disinvited in some cases is less, uh, is less important. Um, is that it's not just commencement speakers. Um, you know, I'd, I'd say probably around, uh, I think more than half of the speakers we've seen disinvited were just coming to give regular old speeches on campus. And he, the bar really seems to be getting um, higher and higher for, uh, for, for, for the purity tests that you have to pass in order to speak on campus. Uh, and, you know, first, uh, this past uh, disinvitation season, Ayan Hirsi Ali was an early um, uh, dis- disinvitee at Brandeis University. And then uh, Condoleezza Rice was targeted, the you know, for months and months, and she finally bowed out um, under pressure, which, you know, I would count as a success of the disinvitation movement. Um, they'd be, as far as they're concerned, that's the result they wanted. Um, but then it ended up being Christine Lagarde, the uh, de- the the, the, the uh, director of the uh, International Monetary Fund, um, stepped down for, uh, after being invited to speak at Smith, um, and then R- Robert Bergenau, um, uh, the same thing happened to him at uh, at at um, another college uh, in uh, I forget the name of it um, in uh, in Pennsylvania. And it really, when it, when it came to Bergenau, it seemed like the, oh Haverford, sorry. Um, when it come to, came to Bergenau, it seemed like what we were saying was that there's, you know, no matter how good you are on ninety nine percent of the topics we're concerned about, if you've done one thing we dislike, we're going to demand you be disinvited. And in this case, it was Bergenau's handling of the um, Occupy uh, Berkeley, uh, Occupy Wall Street protests at Berkeley. Um, and you know, you, you make the point that yes, if you disagree with someone, then by all means, you know, if you want to protest outside, fine. Um, but we also get back to this very old-fashioned idea of shouldn't you at least try to hear the person you disagree with out? Shouldn't you? Um, and, and this was really driven home by what happened to Ray Kelly at um, uh, when he tried to speak at Brown uh, last fall. Ray Kelly, you know, he's the guy in charge of. Uh, of, of the police in, in New York. And he very controversially, um, you know, started the stop and frisk program. You know, certainly civil libertarians uh, oppose this, and I think with good reason. But recognizing this, when he, when he offered to speak at uh, um, uh, Brown, he set aside an hour 
for question and, uh, question and answer afterwards. So if you really wanted to stick it to uh, Ray Kelly, you, they were giving him an opportunity to ask him those questions. But instead, Ray Kelly came to speak at Brown. Students gathered together to shout him down um, so nobody could hear a word that he was saying and eventually make, making the speech pointless. And I think the students who were the most robbed by this were the ones who wanted to ask Ray Kelly those, those tough questions. So the disinvitation season phenomena was definitely very high profile. Um, but I think it, it, it shows that um, students are increasingly, uh, and in some cases faculty members, have some of the wrong ideas about what free speech means. So I guess I have less of a problem with that mm-hmm. than I do with some of the other uh, trends that right. we're seeing in higher education, most notably the idea of both uh, trigger warnings and what has come to be called safe spaces. Right. The, the idea that um, certain things just don't get discussed in what seems to be an ever-broadening range of context. Right. So, and from the perspective of academic freedom, if you're, as you point out, an untenured professor who is asked to prepare a syllabus that is warning students that they might find something supremely objectionable in the reading, uh, that that colors how you do your job. Yeah. Well, I, I focus a lot on trigger warnings in, in freedom from speech, and I'm very concerned about them. Um, And the problem is the people who are advocating for putting trigger warnings – and there was a student at Rutgers who even advocated for a trigger warning being placed on The Great Gatsby uh, because it has apparently misogyny and violence in it. Um, And now you can sort of have this debate at at the level of whether or not trigger warnings are a good thing um, and that's a deep philosophical debate. Um, Certainly the people who advocate for them, you know, they'll often invoke people suffering from – uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome saying that, that we're trying to protect them. Now, of course, the huge swath of categories of speech that they want to be accompanied with trigger warnings at schools like Oberlin, for example, really kind of belie that. They, they make, it's much broader than simply someone who's suffering from uh, you know, a, a, a post-traumatic uh, stress syndrome from abuse or, or anything like that. But out, outside of sort of the philosophical debate around it, as a practical matter, I watch professors get in trouble for what they say on campuses all the time. Um, students will target uh, uh, professors they don't like for, for, for any opinion that they really disagree with. Uh, facu- uh, other faculty members will do that in some cases too and certainly administrators will. The disaster of mandatory trigger warnings if they were to really impose these things is that it becomes a literally impossible expectation. Uh, no uh, professor can guess um, what a student will claim, sincerely or not, has quote-unquote triggered them. So if, if we started imposing trigger warnings, if universities decide to adopt trigger warnings as standard practice on campus, this would be the, an inc- uh, incredible boon for people who want to shut up professors. It would be incredibly easy to say, ah, you triggered me, but you didn't, um, uh, you didn't put it in the syllabus, or you could have triggered someone, you didn't put it in the syllabus, and you didn't warn me beforehand, um, you're out of a job. And as I was writing this, as I was write, writing the section on trigger warnings, seven uh, professors wrote an open letter to Inside Higher Education saying, we are already getting calls from angry students and administrators saying um, the material you covered in, I don't know, like your criminal law class um, or, or humanities class was too, was too offensive and should have been accompanied by the trigger warning. Um, so I think that professors should be scared to death of the idea that, that, uni- that uh, administrations might actually want to impose this impossible standard. Uh, 
and it does change the burden dramatically yes. between you know we all want to treat our fellows with respect and we want to uh, use manners when we deal with people and understand if they have a difficulty to try to treat them right. with some uh, re- respect and, and just try to try to try to understand and accommodate that as as people in civil society should want to do but then to flip that and and sit, tell everyone yep. that you are now expected to self-censor in a way that you can't really know in advance necessarily how you're going to uh, affect people it just it's it's frightening yeah well, and, and I mean to me, sort of philosophically and from a clinical perspective, one of the most um, frustrating things about the whole trigger warning movement um, and this was one of the few articles actually written by a, a psychological healthcare professional about this was in, in the Chronicle of Higher Education and she makes the point that, that everyone needs to understand is that what you're saying by having a trigger warning um, is that, well, you have PTSD – and you're never going to be able to read literature again. You're never. Uh, you're always going to be frightened, and we're just going to throw up our hands and try to bubble wrap the world around you. That's not what people. That's not what a psychologist wants for someone who suffers from PTSD. They want them to be able to um, interact freely and without terror. Um, and the idea that in, 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 by invoking people with PTSD, you have different advocates uh, pushing for a system that basically uh, gives up on people who suffer from post-traumatic stress syndrome, says it's like you're, you're, you're never going to be okay. And the, the, in, in this great piece in the Chronicle, you know, the doctor points out that the whole goal of treating someone um, with PTSD is to get it so that they can interact normally in, in, in the world. Meanwhile, given the fact that, it, that any of the literature, um, if you're suffering from trauma, anything potentially can trigger you. It's not that the content of Lolita can trigger you. It's that the, co- the color of the cover of Lolita can trigger you. It can be anything. So it is literally an impossible uh, th- thing for university uh, uh, professors to keep track of. The range of people who, to whom this idea of trigger warnings uh, might be subject, mm-hmm. is dramatically expanded. It started with just people who have suffered some profound trauma, but has now expanded to apparently include people who are bothered by something. Right. Uh, that something that even just a few short years ago would have been considered offensive, perhaps patently offensive is now something that is viewed as, as threatening. Right. And so this idea of trigger warnings plus safe spaces really seems to be a way around uh, not hearing things you want to hear, as your, yeah. the title here implies. Right. Yeah. And, and it, 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 I, people are endlessly creative at figuring out ways to shut down speech they dislike. And that's something you learn you don't have to be a First Amendment lawyer to see this in action, but when you are, you get to see it in action every hour of every day. And the the current sort of approach to shutting shutting down speech that people don't like on, on campuses is this very sort of um, you know uh, sort of compassion based, sometimes frankly, excuse to say. Well, you know, a nice person wouldn't say that or, uh, you know, someone who was sensitive wouldn't talk about this this subject. And it has this very kind of, frankly, passive-aggressive energy uh, around it. Now, the safe space uh, stuff, like, and, and of course, you, you know, you, 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 
uh, tackle trigger warnings or you criticize safe spaces. And, you know, it, it's really easy to portray anybody who has any opposition to them as, you know, monsters essentially who are, who are incredibly um, uh, insensitive. Uh, but I, I think that this is playing a very dangerous game. I, I, I take on the, um, the, uh, the word safety, the way it's used these days on campuses, uh, head on and freedom from speech. Um, and my point is it's very important to keep important words as powerful as they were intended to be. But unfortunately, the word safety on campus for quite some time now has been translated into something much softer, something that basically means – um, feeling perfectly intellectually, physically, and emotionally comfortable. Um, when people ask, like, are you feeling safe uh, on campuses, there's a good chance that really what they're asking for is, is, is everything, are, are you totally fine and unruffled in every single way? Um, that's dangerous. That's the, the lesson that, that I think people who uh, sort of water down the meaning of safety um, in, in that case should think of is the boy who cried wolf. And the idea of let's say a student is in actual physical danger and they go to their uh, – go to an administrator, go to a teacher, go to a friend and say, I'm not feeling safe. In normal campus parlance, that probably means it's like, oh, I'm uncomfortable. Um, if, if you even have to hesitate to figure out are you in actual danger or are you uncomfortable, that creates some potentially genuinely dangerous ambiguities around a lot of situations that could be very serious or not. We spoke before for a podcast uh, on your book, Unlearning Liberty, and you talked a little bit about how students felt unpopular opinions could be spoken. And the longer that students are in school, the lower their likelihood of agreeing that they may express their unpopular opinions. And higher than any student, of course, or faculty members who felt that it was le- it was very unsafe to express uh, popular opinions, unsafe in a right. in a broad sense, uh, unsafe for their careers. That is, but what do, what can we gather from those opinions as these people leave school and then go out into the world? Right. Well, in, in freedom from speech, I, I try to sort of expand the lens beyond beyond campus and um, say where I think we're headed overall uh, for the state state of freedom of speech. And, I, and what one of the major points I'm trying to make is that, yes, I focus on free speech issues on college campuses. But I think we're, we're not fully understanding the problem unless we get that as people become you know, more affluent, as countries become more comfortable, as people have more you know, medication to take care of pain and they have greater ability to section themselves off into just little internet echo chambers where everyone agrees with them – um, that people start to see uh, not just physical comfort but intellectual comfort as a kind of right. And this is poison to intellectual development. Um, so I'm not a particularly pessimistic person by nature. Uh, you know, I'm excited about technology. I've got you know, big, big Ray Kurzweil fan. I can't wait for the nanites to, like, to, to, to solve so many different problems. But, I, but partially in contrast to libertarian optimism that I run into an awful lot, um, I think that there's a category of things that will get worse, not just as everything else is getting better, but because everything else is getting better. And as we get more comfortable, as we get more affluent, I think it's harder and harder to explain to people that disagreement, offensive speech, being challenged, being shown to be wrong is actually good for you. Um, but if you don't believe in that, uh, if you don't understand that, why would you believe in freedom of speech? And the re- and my premise in freedom from speech is that we're headed into this 
weird future. Um, I, we can, you can see it in Europe. You can see it in every country uh, on the planet. You can even see it in the United States where increasingly people are not expecting so much freedom of speech. They're, they're expecting to be protected from it. Greg Lukianoff is president of the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education. You can read more on the value of and challenges to free speech at our website, cato.org.